All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today, we're going to be getting another perspective on the search engine wars of the late 1990s by speaking with Bob Davis. Bob was not only the founder of the search engine slash web portal known as Lycos, he was also the CEO, first employee, and for a time, the only employee. Bob will recount for us how Lycos took technology from academia, turned it into a viable company, and became one of the, quote, four horsemen of the dot-com era. Today, Bob is a partner at the venture capital firm Highland Capital Partners. Please enjoy this great conversation while I head outside and start shoveling snow. I don't know if you can hear that scraping in the background, but we're only two hours into this blizzard and already people are starting to try to dig out. Bob Davis, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. It's a pleasure. Bob, I wanted to actually start with um, with Wang Laboratories. Um, Wang is uh, one of those companies that I remember from the 80s being so huge that's sort of gone down the, the memory hole a bit. So for those, of, those listening that might not remember Wang, um, tell us a little bit about it and what you did there. Well, it's tough to describe Wang without describing what they do because Wang was in the era prior to personal computers of a, uh, what was referred to as a mini-computer company. It was the first wave of what was distributed processing where large corporations, or for that matter, small businesses, used uh, computing. For the most part, very reasonably sophisticated systems for their day, but they were, uh, in a big company, they usually departmental uh, computers. And I was in a variety of different roles there in sales and sales management, starting in, oh, I think probably 1982 all the way through the early 90s. And correct me if my impression of this is wrong, but Wang was sort of one of those classic Clay Christensen disruptive, you know, uh, poster child of, of they sort of didn't adapt to to the market as it evolved and it sort of the market left them behind. Is that right? Well, I, I don't know if that's totally accurate, but Wang, Wang was a uh, the pioneer of word processing, what they thought, and they had word processing on, uh, again, the predecessor to the PC. What they done. The company was since sold to a a duck business a good long time ago, but it, it developed into a very thriving services company. It 
became uh, moved out of hardware, it changed its name and, and built a long ongoing services business. But Wang was offering, you don't think of a word processing company in this day and age. In fact, it's, a, it's just a little sidebar of everything we have. It's, it's integrated into any computer or phone or anything you have. But in those days, corporations would spend millions of dollars for something that would do no more than replace the typewriter. And that was Wang's uh, claim to fame. Mm-hmm. So you spent 11 years at Wang and uh, a couple years at a, a company called Cambex. And then... Yeah, I was I was a VP of sales there, and Cambex was a company that sold a memory for very high-end IBM mainframes. And one day you get a call. A... You get a call from um, Dan Nova, who was at CMGI at the time. Was that right? Yeah, that's right. And Dan was uh, Dan had come across some technology developed by a scientist down at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. By the name of Lycos, a very brilliant scientist by the name of Michael Malden, and he had developed some software to index the internet. Now, this was in uh, 1994, and not many of us knew what the internet really was at that point, and uh, he was developing the first search engine. And as we all know today, the internet would be relatively useless without some way of finding us through that morass. We used to describe it back in the early days when people would say, what is search? Because no one understood it. We described it to say, imagine the world's largest card catalog. And somebody messes up all the cards and they all fall on the floor. And how do you find the book that you want? Well, search was the answer to it. And we provided the index. And that's what Lycos was. And the scientist that developed it was not interested in being part of the business. He wanted to stay with Carnegie Mellon. And Carnegie Mellon wanted to keep it that way. So it was a very unusual transaction where Dan, as a venture capitalist, uh, funded the purchase of the technology from this individual and from the university, and then I came on to found the company as the first employee. So it really is a, a classic case of, of taking a university research project and, and turning it into a commercial uh, venture. Yeah, very much so. In fact, it, it's even more so than that, we can tie it back to the government, because some of the funding that the scientists had came from Adopa. So it was even more so than that. So it was kind of a double research project that we saw. Now, when correct me if I'm wrong on this, when um, when Dan calls you, he's he's talking about the idea, but he's not necessarily recruiting you to be the CEO of this new company. You sort of sub- suggest yourself for that. Yeah, that's that's very accurate. We were uh, Dan and I were talking about what he was doing. In fact, Dan wasn't even at that point. There was no company. There was no concept of the company. Dan was lamenting the fact that he found this interest in software, but traditional venture capitalists then and now don't invest in just software, they invest in teams, and he said he's not sure what he'll do with it because there was a um, no, no team in place and no one around the company, and I suggested that I would jump off and do it, and I had known Dan for a long time. He and I were co-workers at uh, Wang Laboratories, and now, you know, fast forward, Dan and I are working together at Highland Capital. We've worked together for probably over 30 years. But uh, I suggested to Dan that I would jump into this, and we had some dialogue, and, and one went to another. And then, uh, as I said, I joined the company officially. I started the company in June of 1995. Not only the first, but as the only employee, because uh, nobody from the uh, university came with us. At least initially, no one came with us. So you're you're the only employee, and so your you your job is to get everything going, including getting a team together, getting a business plan, the whole shebang, right? That's that's very true. Yeah, 
and including hiring some uh, technologists and engineers that understood how to operate this product because otherwise I had a bunch of software which really wasn't going to do us much good without the ability to continue to develop and enhance that and, and deliver that to the market. So what is? And of course, at that point, of course, at that point, we had no business model. We had right. We weren't sure if we were a technology company, a media company. We weren't sure uh, if we'd be licensing software. We weren't really sure what we'd be doing, other than uh, we thought we had something pretty exciting that we could build on. Well, that was precisely my next question: is so how did what was the the, the business model that you finally settled on, and and how did you settle on it, and how did that develop? Well, it took it took some time. We uh, continued to build audience, and that was very important. So we worked really hard to, one, to get the product working in a steady environment. Coming out of the university, the, the product didn't offer the scale requirements it needed for a, a, a large audience, or for that matter, to index large numbers of websites. I remember when we when we crossed the threshold of indexing 10 million websites, and that was that was monumental in its day. We splashed that across the web page and said 10 million sites indexed. And it, it sounded so big, and of course today it's billions and billions of pages indexed in every hour of every day. But uh, we weren't sure what we wanted to do, and we looked around to say, let's build an audience, and maybe we'll be a media company and sell ads, and or maybe we would license this software to corporations to index their own databases within inside a company, within a company, uh, or maybe we would license the software to others with a large internet presence that were looking to offer search in some capacity. And we kicked around a lot of those. We, uh, after uh, a few months, uh, brought in our first bit of revenue where we sold an ad uh, to AT&T. It's really one of the first ads that the Internet has ever seen. Uh, it was a whopping $5,000 order. and I remember it well to this day and how excited we were we received it. And uh, we realized very quickly after we had the ad that we didn't have any infrastructure or technology to deliver an ad. So splashing an ad in real time on a given page was was breakthrough at that point as well. So we needed to go off and have our engineers and rapid fire develop uh, some code that would allow for the delivery of advertising on the internet. And uh, we did that uh, in, a, in, in a bit of a haphazard fashion at first, and over time it became quite sophisticated. And the Lycus, the, the site launches in April of 1995, right? Um, the, that's about, that's about right in terms of time frame. Okay. And so at that point, um, and, 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 we, and we incorporated as a, as a company in June of 95. Okay. At that point there, you're not entering, um, an empty field. I mean, at this point, uh, Yahoo's already well established. There's InfoSeek, Excite, I think is already running at that point. Well, Excite was there. It wasn't called, uh, Excite at that time. I forget the exact Ar name. Architects. Something like Architects. Right, Architects. Yep. And there was a company called Open Text out of Canada that was on the play. So, so we were uh, we were late to the game for sure as it relates to the early uh, search engines. There was uh, no shortage of competition that was in the market, and there and there were many directories at the time as well. So there were companies called uh, Point and, and others that had these directories, which is really what Yahoo was. Because when Yahoo launched, it wasn't really search. It was uh, it was all about navigating the web, but it wasn't a classic. Didn't have any search capability. So the directory. How, how does that affect your your strategy now as you're entering the market, being as um, you're you're trying to catch up with existing players? Um, is it all just about getting audience early on and and, and getting noticed, really? Uh, yeah, it was about getting audience, but at the time the internet was growing so fast, it was a rising tide lifting many ships. So 
many of us were developing audience, but but uh, on a relative basis, our market share was still smaller than the others. So uh, it, there was a point in time where our, our audience continued to grow. Relative to the others, we were still smaller. Now, we would have to jump forward a few pages to talk what we, about what we did to leapfrog all the others. But uh, And we did that quite successfully. But, but early on, we were a bit of an also-land for probably our first several months. And, and that's part of why we, we licensed our technology to many others. We, we referred to ourselves, we were confused as to whether we were technology or media, and we referred to ourselves as a techno-media business, which means which was just a crazy term that we invented at the time. Would say we were a blend of a technology model and a and a media model, and that's where we captured our revenues. And we had some companies again that many of these names people wouldn't know today, but players like CompuServe and Prodigy and and AT and T and and many others that licensed our core search engine from us with the hopes of developing their own mass market audience or their own media audience. And how important was um, another name that's not around today, um, Netscape? How important was Netscape in terms of reaching that audience and, and the, being on the Netscape search button, I mean? Netscape was critically important. And, and early on, Netscape offered that to most of the search engines uh, at that point in time. They just did that uh, in the concept of the open Internet and trying to provide users with access to what was out there. Um, and it was critically important. A lot of our audience came from Netscape. People didn't understand the idea of a website being an independent entity or business. They opened up a browser, and whatever the browser presented is generally where people went. So most didn't get it that there were these separate websites where you could type in a, a, a web address. Surely no one understood the idea. I say no one. Very few understood the idea of a URL or a domain name and how to enter that and how to find a site. The Netscape was the source of much of our early audience. In fact, it was in the right in the eve of our IPO that Netscape changed its its policies quite significantly. And we woke up one day with that that button on the Netscape browser, which would be a little toolbar they had, was free. And we woke up one day uh, again on the eve of the IPO, and Netscape said, "No longer is it no longer free, but it's going to cost you five million dollars for this position." And it was a it was a big Gutsy call we had to make as to whether or not we wanted to pay for that audience from Netscape. But you, you did end up paying the five million. We did, and thankfully we did because I, those that didn't disappeared very quickly, and those that did can, continued to have an opportunity. It didn't guarantee anyone success because they sold that button to uh, several different companies, but it allowed you the opportunity to continue to compete. Without that, uh, we would have quickly had been irrelevant. Well, let's do talk about the IPO because, um, you know, Lycos had the uh, was the the fastest uh, company to go to IPO from inception to IPO at, at least at one point. I don't know if that's still true, but the IPO was only eight months after launching, right? Close. I mean, I think it still is actually from inception of the company to our IPO was was nine months. And at the time, that was a record for uh, NASDAQ. I, I think it still is. I can't, I can't tell you with certainty. But, yeah. And we became a public company as a source of capital. There wasn't the abundance of venture capital money in 1996 that there, that there was a few years later. Uh, we needed a lot of uh, uh, money to, to uh, grow the business. That was one reason we did it. And the other is because we could. The, uh, there was an excitement around uh, many of these uh, Internet stocks. And thanks to Netscape, with well, its wildly successful IPO, and, and we could. So we looked at that as a, a path for uh, 
for the offering itself. Well, and also, would a consideration have been, don't all of the search engines seem to, to go public around the same time, like the Yahoo's and the Excites and everybody? So it's sort of table stakes. You need to be able to have a war chest to, to compete, right? It was. And we all went, uh, I say we all, several, several of the companies went public on just quick heels of each other. So it was ourselves, Yahoo, and I, I believe it was InfoSeek that went public all in a very short time span. Um, and then Excite not long after. In fact, many referred to us then as the four horsemen because we all had very similar business models and what we're trying to accomplish. And we all competed fiercely for market share. Yeah, let's talk about that. So now let's we're moving into let's say ninety six, ninety seven era, um, where it is this this sort of horse race between uh, who's going to be the the dominant search player. But that evolves into this idea of a portal, and I feel like you guys were right. one of the one of the first people to come up with this portal idea as a strategy. Can you can you talk about how that sort of evolved and and why it evolved? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We thought people came to us for more than search, and there was a, there was a variety of different things people were looking for at that point in time that range for news and information and sports and stock quotes and all the things that are so commonplace and so specialized on the web today. But we began to offer all of those, which is very novel. And just, you know, what, what were we? We were your portal or your front door uh, into the Internet is what we developed. And, and that was a big key to our audience growth because not only did we offer these new services, we did we did much of that through we did much of that through uh, uh, acquisition. Uh, we acquired we acquired um, over the course of time acquired or invested in probably two or three dozen different businesses at that point in time, and um, each of those was used to build our audience. In fact, that was key to how we went from one of many competing how our audience grew quite substantially that we used, we built what we call the network effect, and we learned from traditional media. If, if you look at traditional media and what they all have done, I mean, a, tr- a traditional media franchise uses all of its successful properties to grow audience. I mean, if you watch television today, it pick any hour of any day, and it was true then, of course, as well, you'll find promotion for other networks and other shows on at different times and in different areas. And we did the same thing. We acquired all these properties, kept them as standalone brands, and drove audience and user from one brand to another, one of our internet brands to another. And then this network effect that we call it, uh, it, it began to accelerate, and it was, a, it was just a whirlwind, and our audience soared. And then it was uh, week after week, month after month, our audience just continued to grow. We woke up one day as the most visited online destination in the world. So we passed, we surpassed Yahoo and all the others is a, is the number one site on the internet. Thanks to uh, this network effect. And also a very, very effective advertising campaign. Which, uh, you know, back then it was unusual to be looking at offline advertising for internet properties, but we did that with a very successful television campaign. Well, which I remember very well. Um, I, I did want to stop, though, and, and and touch on a couple of those acquisitions, those properties, because I feel like a lot of them were really groundbreaking and doing things that now we take for granted. Like, for example, let's start with Tripod. Um, yeah. And, and what yeah, Tripod, Tripod did. Tri- yeah, Tripod was a company we acquired for all of $58 million. Again, that was a lot then, but uh, today it's so, so, so trivial. But uh, Tripod was personal homepages, and, and I think of personal homepages as the ability to build your own website, or, or even uh, maybe an early version of Facebook. Uh, it didn't have the networking and social components that you find in Facebook, but it sure was used by most is the ability to tell the world about yourself. 
and uh, we acquired that. And we acquired a, a, a competitor tripod called Angelfire that did much the same thing. And we kept each of these as separate and independent brands. Right, and um... then we acquired companies. We acquired uh, Wired uh, Digital, which was the the Wired news site that's still po- so popular today. We own that. And right, we let me another search. Let, let me get to that in a second. Um, t- t- touch on also Gamesville as well. Yeah, well, Gamesville was the last acquisition we had prior to the time we sold the company. So that was it was after all the the other ones we talked about. But uh, Gamesville was a, a, a online gaming destination, and so I, I don't know what you compare it to today. I guess maybe an early version of Zinger or something, but it mm-hmm. was it was games which were widely popular and generating billions of page views on the on the Nisa. You know, it was one of the very first it was one of the very first game sites uh, on the internet offering all sorts of simple web based games. And also um, you guys And we and we paid two, we paid two hundred and seventy five million for that, which is a blockbuster price. But so right very, that's definitely inflation. That's a lot of Yeah. Yeah. Um, also quote.com and Raging Bull. Yeah, there were two separate acquisitions. Quote.com was personal finance, so it was a place to get stock quotes and, and real-time stock quotes, so the equivalent of the Bloomberg terminal, not the 20-minute delay that you would find. And Raging Bull was a was a message board where people wanted to talk about the stocks that they own. So do do go into, then, the, the Wired purchase, because Wired was famously this sort of um, ill-starred company that in terms of trying to go public themselves and things like that. So right. you guys come in and, and you purchase not the magazine, but the, the, the digital properties of Wired, right? That's right. Well, the magazine, the digital properties had already spun out from the magazine. They were separate, separate businesses at that point in time. And we acquired Wire, which included uh, a, 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 a couple of, uh, properties, but the most notable uh, of those was the Wired News site, as well as the uh, Hotbot, H-O-T-B-O-T, the Hotbot search engine, which was yet another search engine that was very popular. And we uh, acquired that and kept that as an independent entity as well, as well as the, the infamous at the Times, Stock.com, which was a, uh, a sectorial uh, site that, that we, we had owned. Yes, I've, I've interviewed a couple of people from Suck already, so... Um... Just on a personal level, um, you know, Lycos was your was your first time as a CEO, I believe, and and so let's let's try to put you back in what it's like ninety seven, ninety eight. Now all of a sudden, you know, the 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 dot com mania is happening, and and you're running one of the the biggest internet companies in the world at this point. And what was try to remember what the 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 madness was of, of when the dot com era takes off in earnest. Yeah, it was an exciting time that we had going on at that point. It was uh, a lot of craziness that we had. The business was growing very rapidly. We were our employee base was expanding um, by the day, and trying to manage that growth was was um, a tiger by the tail. It was, uh, but it was euphoric for all of us that were part of it. We were thought we were changing the world, and we were on to this this technology revolution that was just so so bold and so so different. And it was uh, it was. Uh, hard work, but it was very exciting and very fun. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And there was an, uh, an aborted attempt to uh, merge with Barry Diller and USA Networks at some point. That's right. Yeah, that was in uh, 1999. Uh, USA Networks had uh, suggested that we would merge in with a number of their properties. Uh, not all of USA Networks, but certain of their properties. And the way it would have worked is Lycos was going to acquire all of the assets of the home shopping network and of Ticketmaster and of a number of other properties that um, USA Network owned. And we were going to be creating what we thought would be an Uber both uh, commerce as well as information portal that we had in place today. We had a, um, a shareholder, a uh, bit of a shareholder revolt when we tried to do that. There were some that felt that, that uh, Internet diamonds were worth more than all this uh, offline stuff. So as a result, we didn't feel we'd get the shareholder votes necessary for the merger, and we uh, backed away from that. Well, keep that in mind because I, I have a question that will circle back to that uh, towards the end here. But... Um, you, Lycos eventually um, is acquired uh, by Terra Networks, which is uh, was the internet arm of Telefonica, um, and that was a, yeah. that was one of the biggest uh, you know uh, mergers of of the entire internet era. How did that come about? Yeah, well, we were approached by uh, by Telefonica, and it's really not just Telefonica. There was a multi-part uh, uh, acquisition there. The Terra Networks was the was a public entity in its own right, but it was a wholly owned subsidiary of Telefonica, and they used that as part of the acquisition vehicle. They also used quite a bit of cash that they offered by way of a rights offering, and then Bertelsmann, the uh, German media titan, jumped in with a, a billion dollars in cash and the merger consideration. And at the time, it was a $12.5 billion proposed merger price that they would uh, uh, buy Lycos for. And that was over the course of a good amount of negotiation, and we ultimately felt it was the right thing to do. And from my own standpoint, you know, who knows if it was the right move or wrong move, but I certainly felt that Internet valuations were ahead of themselves, and not a lot of what we had made sense. You know, now I felt our valuation relative to others was very justified, as you expect as a as a uh, which as a CEO of my company and a good steward of the company, felt our price, again, on a relative basis is very fair, but I felt the entire industry was ahead of itself. And we had this opportunity to give a return to our shareholders, and we uh, took advantage of that. Now, you know, Google was just coming on the scenes in those days and was a, a, a fraction of what it is today, certainly a much smaller company than you were. You know, who knows? If we, if we stuck it out, maybe we would have been Google today. I, I don't know. So... It was a it was a great exit for our shareholders, but um, who knows on the long haul if it was right or not. Uh, I do know that there were a lot of very, very rocky and difficult years that went from 2000 to 2004, uh, where the, the, many of the companies in that era struggled and many went away. So I, I guess you can say you, you don't lose money making money. Well, that was actually exactly the, the question I was going to come back to, because when I interviewed um, George Bell of Excite, I, I, I asked them this similar question, which was, in retrospect, do you think that there could have been room in, in the search field for a strong number two to Google, like maybe if the, the USA Network's uh, merger had gone through or something like that? 
Well, again, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have been a string of a two to Google. It would have been a number one to Google. It's really a substantial. Or, or yeah, I, I apologize. Maybe so, the better word is competitor or a, a, a one yeah. and two. Yeah. So, so, so I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's tough to tell. Google became a juggernaut, and they did some things very, very effectively. It was less technology based at the time, and more that there was a great market mix that they carved out. Carved out. But. Um, but uh, who knows? Uh, you could you could make an argument that Google wouldn't have existed. Google would have disappeared if the, if all the players stayed in place. You could make an argument that Google would squash us all. I, I don't really know. But but Google, when it first showed up, there, there was nothing really revolutionary about its technology at all. It was very it was very commonplace. Uh, what Google did is that when all the portals had become portals, which means uh, all the search engines rather had become portals, Google stayed showed up and was very, very focused on search and only search. They had a very simple page with nothing on it, focused on fast load times, and said, hey, this is all we do. And as the search pages became cluttered with other stuff, um, Google said, we're the alternative, and they kind of got a nice niche for themselves. Eventually, over time, that technology became really dominant and uh, very impressive, but, but back in 1999, there was nothing special about it. Uh, final question, Bob. Um, it, seeing as how uh, you know this year would be exactly twenty years that you started down this road with with Lycos, and and uh, you know to this day you're you're in you're a VC and you're you're still working with startups. I presume largely in the internet or technology space. When you look back on the it being twenty years, um, how is how how's the startup game different than than when you did it in the Web one point era? Well, I don't really think it is any different. Uh, I mean, the, the product's different, the faces are different, but it's it's really the same thing. Startup is a, is a great entrepreneur with a vision that says like they're excited about building something that has a dream, um, and is willing that has the perseverance to to turn that dream into reality. And to me, that's what the startup business was then, and that's what it is now. There might be more capital available to to, to more readily available in private markets, but but I, I think it's still a very similar story, and and I'd suggest it was like that 20 years before when the people when people were starting the mini computer companies of today that we, we talked about earlier. Well, Bob Davis, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast and um, remembering all that for us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.